if it's ironic how God works or if it's just kind of funny sometimes how he does things. I, you know, obviously, if you look around, and I won't point anyone out in particular, you may, I won't, but uh, God definitely has a sense of humor. And so, um, you know, we all are different. We all have our quirks. We all have our things that are just odd about us. And obviously, because of all that, God has a sense of humor. And several years ago, um, I was I had the privilege of, of being the high school pastor at Valley View Church in Louisville, which was my home church. It's where I grew up. I spent the first 30 years of my life there. And, and, it, and then we moved to Atlanta. And bear with me as I tell you my personal history here. But we moved to Atlanta and, and, and then, of course, have, have moved here. And, and before all that, of course, I was a student at Murray State. And, and that's where Nancy and I met. And we were engaged there. We lived at the Baptist Student Union, now the Baptist Campus Ministry. We lived there. We first got married and, and during that summer, and, and, and I remember as I was a high school pastor encouraging different students to go to Murray State, because I love it, and it's great, and, and now here I am, I'm, I'm preaching in Murray, I'm a pastor of a church in Murray, and there are a couple of students from my youth group in Louisville that are, that are here this morning. Anyway, it's just kind of funny how God works. I, I think back to the times that, you know, went on trips, or I was there talking with them each Wednesday night or whatever, it's just... Anyway, it's just I sit back and, and, you know, God knows what he's doing, and, and yet the road sometimes can kind of seem a little curvy, uh, but then he blesses you with opportunities uh, like I have today. So anyway, um, it makes me think back to, I know that, that our, we have several of our college students that are here today, and I uh, was asking a couple of them earlier about, are you ready for finals, because finals are this week, and of course the answer is always No. Um, you know, with like, should I be yet? I mean, you know, I got till tomorrow. What's the big deal? And so, um, and so, you know, it's, uh, I can't say, you know, you look back and you, you know, I, you, sometimes you want to say, well, you ought to be ready. You should have studied up. Come on. And, and, you know, I never did either. And I understand it. I, I think back to when I was a senior in college at Murray State and I lived off campus. I lived uh, up Highway 121 off of Bailey Road in a little place that now is a bigger place called Cambridge. And, and I lived there in a little triplex with two two other guys, and and I guess it was probably about this time of year, finals week, and we really didn't feel like studying, and somehow we wanted to think that we were really in the spirit of Christmas, so we decided we were going to decorate our apartment. And so, um, I'm not much on decorations. I mean, I haven't decorated the, the parsonage on the outside. I mean, just you know, I just it, it's tough for me to really. I admire people who do, you know, those people who are like Clark Griswold from, you know, that movie, and I think it's great, I love it, I love looking at your decorations, my kids love it, I'm just, it's just not necessarily yet for me, okay, so anyway, but in college I thought, we're going we're gonna to do this thing, we're going to decorate, well, we didn't have much money, and we didn't have really any stuff, and so we, we scraped up what we could, and we bought a few lights and a little nativity scene thing, and so... What we did was we went up on top of the roof and we decided we were going to nail some lights up there to, um, to form a little star, you know, like the star that Jamie was using earlier. We're going to make a little Christmas star because we thought, you know, here we are. We, we believe in Jesus and we ought to, you know, in the nativity and they're all looking at the star. And so, so I get up there and here I am. I formed the star or whatever and everything looked great. And we put the nativity out, turned the star on. It was awesome. We're the only people around that had anything on their, you know, on their apartment. And so then it rained. And... <laughs> I realized that you don't nail stuff into the roof without sealing it up a little bit because it started to leak inside our apartment. I'm like, what's going on? So 
Anyway, you know, as I told you before, I don't make things. I don't, I just, I don't work on cars. So, you know, it just was one of those deals. I had to call somebody from our church. We went to the west side at the time. I had to call somebody and say, please come and fix the leak in my roof because I'm an idiot, okay? (laughs) Can you help me? Because I don't know what I'm doing. And, but, so then we had this nativity set out, and, and we had Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. It was all we could afford. And so we, we didn't have the full array. You know, I, I drive down the road, and, you know, people just got it decked out. We went to a live nativity last night. And they got real animals there. I didn't, you know, we didn't have any of that. We couldn't afford a camel. So, so we just had Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and they lit up, and it was nice. And we walk out of our apartment one day to go to, to maybe one of our finals or whatever it was, and Joseph was gone. Like, I know he wasn't real. I know he was a plastic figurine, so he, he couldn't have walked on his own. And so the next day we get up and baby Jesus was gone. I thought, okay, I see. So we started trying to do some investigative reporting. You know, I've watched, you know, those shows before, and I, so I was really good. And so we, we start knocking on doors. Where's Joseph? Where's Jesus? It turns out that in our triplex, two doors down, there were some girls that lived there and decided that they were going to, you know, kind of mess with us just a little bit, and they stole Joseph and Jesus, and, and you know, and, and basically we had to, you know, they were ransomed back, you know, we had to buy them, whatever, and so uh, we, we eventually, we got them back, because we, one night at about, we, we stayed up till we knew they were asleep. You ever tried to do that? We, we were like four in the morning, and here we are just trying to keep ourselves awake, waiting for these girls to go to sleep, so that we could completely tape shut their apartment. Front door, back door, everything taped shut where they couldn't see out. Duct tape everywhere, so they had to really work. To, you know, so that's that's how we got them back for stealing Joseph and Mary. But we anyway. That's what we did in it was finals week. What else are you gonna do? Study. So you know. So anyway, we we had our nativity scene. I don't know if you've had a nativity scene before, but but as I mentioned last week, you know, most of the time we think of the Christmas story it kind of stops with a nativity scene. That's kind of the culminating experience. You know, that's where it all happened. And, it, and, and we, we read the story in Luke chapter 2, and, and we kind of formulate our opinion of the events of the birth of Jesus based upon that story. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And yet the story doesn't begin or end with that particular scene in the Bible. And so when you drive down the road or if you set your own nativity out, It's obvious that in the Bible we read that the story doesn't either begin or end right there. And so this whole series that we're looking at through the month of December called Beyond the Manger is simply to kind of understand some of the surrounding context, some of the things that are going on that we may not read immediately into the story but are are vitally important to what's happening. Last week we looked at the fact that because of the family record of Jesus that, that we know that Jesus is who He says He is, that He is the Messiah, the one who is... It has the authority to reign. He was God in human flesh, and He was sent to be the atonement or the payment for our sins. And so just reading the genealogy of Jesus, there's more to it than just a list of names and, and what children they had. And so today, we're going to look at uh, the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, at one of the prophecies from the Old Testament that predicted that Jesus would come, and more so than just predicting that He would come, predicted who He would be and what He would do. And so... If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Isaiah. And we'll look at it together today. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is toward the middle of the Bible, just after Psalms and Proverbs. Um, and so if you, if you can find those, then obviously you can turn a little bit to the right and find Isaiah chapter 9. <clears throat> it's important as, as you form your, 
for lack of better terms, your theology, which is your understanding of God, that, that you look mainly to the Scripture to do that. Uh, it's dangerous, in, especially, I think, in today's world, to get your understanding, your view of God from, from any source other than the Bible, because if you rely on music or on the movies, you're going to get a picture of God that's not entirely accurate. And while sometimes they, they are accurate, it may not be entirely. As I've mentioned to you before, to get your understanding of God, say, from country music, is a little bit dangerous. And so, from the movies you see, it always makes me cringe. I'd much rather go see you know, a movie, say, like Batman, that has nothing to do with God whatsoever than a movie that tries to portray God in some way uh, that, you know, through use of angels or whatever, because it just skews our opinion of God. And so... God has revealed Himself. I want you to understand this. God has revealed Himself specifically and explicitly through the Scripture. You want to know who God is, what He says about who He is, and, and who you are in Him, go to the Scripture. Uh, it's very clear that, that if we look there, then we'll discover quickly who God is and who He says we are. And so uh, that's what we're going to do today. Um, it, it, Isaiah was, was a prophet who ministered during a time when the Israelite people... Uh, had their kingdom split between two different portions, the northern part and the southern part. There was the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. And so during this time, they, they faced a lot of enemies. They had division among their people. It was a dark, dark time for Israel. Uh, God had uh, punished Solomon's sons and, and offspring with dividing the kingdom because they did not obey him. And so Israel is facing a really difficult time. Isaiah's a prophet. These prophets would stand before the kings, tell them what they're doing wrong. A lot of times they're pretty bold guys. Uh, they would declare to the people what God's going to do. They would warn them about things. They would predict the future, uh, all based upon what God had told them. And so Isaiah uh, is, a, is a prophet several hundred years before the story in Luke chapter 2 of the birth of Jesus. And he's going to give us an idea today of what, what we could have expected had we heard this prophecy back during this time. And so uh, the people of, of Israel had rebelled against God. They were facing some outside enemies, as I said. Uh, they found themselves uh, in darkness both because of these foreign kings and in their own spiritual darkness because of uh, their abandonment of God. And that's kind of where we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 9. So uh, keep in mind that Isaiah's just told them that you're in darkness, you're going to continue to be in darkness, uh, you've abandoned God, things are not going well. Uh, and he says in verse 1, Nevertheless... The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun. Look in verse 2. Um, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoiced when dividing spoils. You have shattered their burdensome yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now all that to say that he, give, he begins to give this picture of who Jesus is. Why in the world does what the Old Testament predict matter as it pertains to who Jesus is? The truth be told, the entire story of the Bible is all about leading us to and then culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the entire Bible was written to do, was to point to Him as our source of, of all life and salvation. And so in Isaiah, we look at verses 1 through 5, and we realize that, that what the Old Testament prophecy first says about Jesus in this particular chapter is that He turns darkness to light. If you've got your bulletin, you can follow along on the back side. If you like to fill in blanks and take notes and that kind of thing, it's available to you. And 
Isaiah makes it clear that, be, that based upon the fact that the, the Israelite people divided among these two kingdoms were in darkness based upon the conquering of foreign kings, based upon their own sin, based upon the fact they had abandoned God, that they were in darkness. But it says, nevertheless, in spite of all that, there is one coming who, who brings darkness into light. And so Jesus is pointed to as that person. So despite their sin, their abandonment of God, His desire for them, God's desire for the Israelite people never waned. His love was always faithful. And, and he, he, he talks about the fact that He turns the darkness into light. Jesus Himself, in Luke chapter 4, quoted this particular Scripture later on in Isaiah. I'm going to give you several different Scripture references today. If you want to just write these off to the side, you won't see them on the screen, but you can, you can write Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, say this. Jesus, again, as I said, quoted this based upon this is what, who, who He was and what He did. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our Lord's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify Him. Jesus quoted that as a, as a statement about Himself, pointing to the fact that He does indeed give light instead of darkness. That He will give clothes of beauty instead of clothes of ashes, the Bible talks about. That He replaces all the old junk with something brand new. If you've experienced that conversion with Jesus, you know that regardless of what your life was, either sort of good or really not good at all before Jesus, that He's replaced all the old stuff with something new. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that we are made totally new in Jesus Christ, brand new creations. And so it was predicted in Isaiah that that's what He would be about. And over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, we find Jesus turning the old dark stuff, the stuff that didn't honor Him, into light, changing people's lives. That's what Jesus is all about. Not just making us better people, but radically transforming our lives into something that mirrors Him. Because just to become a better person obviously still leaves us far short of, of our ultimate purpose in glorifying God. Only through Jesus can we do that. So we learn in the first five verses that He turns darkness to light. And then we get to verse 6 of chapter 9 in Isaiah. And it says this, For a child will be born to us. Some of your versions may say, For unto us a child is born. You've memorized that scripture. For to us... A child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's probably a familiar passage to some of you, and maybe you've read this before. There have been songs about it and so on, and we see in the very first part of verse 6 that a child will be born to us. Isaiah predicting what's going to happen, that the Messiah will be born in the form of a child. And so we, we learn here that not only was he, he the one who would turn darkness into light, but he was sent for our benefit. He was sent for our benefit. Because he came as a child in humble form, the most vulnerable form that, that we know of. I mean, you think of, of a baby, they're completely dependent upon someone else and and yet He came as a child to fully identify with us. We looked at this a little bit last week when we talked about the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh. And, and the reason that's important, that He came as a child and later grew to be a man, fully man yet fully God, was that the only way that He could pay for the sin of humanity was to become a man. 
And, and that was the only way he could fully identify with us. So he was sent for our benefit. And then he, Isaiah begins to describe some of the names and character of Jesus. He calls him the Wonderful Counselor, which implies that he is a source of all knowledge and wisdom. He's a source of all knowledge and wisdom. The truth is there's no teacher like Jesus. The parables that he told were understandable. You think about the greatest teachers that you've ever known. They make maybe even a difficult subject understandable to you. I, I know from my college experience, there were times when I just thought, I, I, there's no way, I, I'm not going to understand that. And yet, when I had a professor who did his job the right way, or did her job the right way, and helped me understand, they were an incredible teacher. There's no teacher like Jesus. He took very difficult subjects and made them understandable. He taught in ways that people could get it. And the, the New Testament is full of his teaching. And you know that if you've read that in any way, that that over time, as you continue to let that sink in, you can understand what Jesus was talking about. Not only is there, does, does he make it understandable, but he, he gets to the heart of the issue. If you've ever read, I would encourage you to, to read it at some point, uh, from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in chapter 5, Jesus begins to give some things. He said, you know, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. He goes back to the old law. He said, you know, you've heard it, you've heard it taught that you shouldn't murder. But Jesus goes one step further and he says, you know, the, the real issue there is not, not just that you murdered, it's that it began with something in your heart called hate. And so Jesus cut straight to the issue. You ever had somebody in your life who does that? Who just reads through all the junk? Who just, uh, th th somehow they just have some window into your heart and they know exactly what's going on. They can read your mind. You ever had, it just drives me nuts when people can do that. I mean, it just, it may, you know, I'm like, you know, because we want to put up a front. We just, well, you okay? Well, I, yeah, I don't. I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, that's what the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law back then wanted to show. Well, yeah, I followed the law. And Jesus says, "Hold on, just a second. Have you really followed the law? Because the heart of that, if you want to really get down to it, as he taught, was don't hate. Don't even let that sink into your heart. He he went on further to say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And they would all say, well, okay, well, yeah, all right, I won't do that. But Jesus says, well, hold on. It begins with lust in your heart. Have you done any of that? And and Jesus would go on to talk about, well, you know, not only should you not repay your enemies, but you should treat them as if you love them. So he cuts straight to the heart of the issue. There's no teacher like him. And, and, and also the, the Bible there in Isaiah describes him as the wonderful counselor. There's no counselor like him. You ever been to a counselor? I have. Ever, ever talk to somebody? Maybe it's just maybe it's not in a formal sense, but but maybe you just talk to somebody who who they're kind of your personal counselor, whether you've paid for professional counseling or not. They're just your person that you always go to for advice. And 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 sometimes they give you exactly what you need, but sometimes they're too emotionally involved with it. They can't really see through it. They they can't give you solid advice. They can't really help you. And truth is, we all need a counselor, and we we turn to a lot of different sources. I always. When I was a, a high school pastor, I used to always laugh about the fact that, that, that the teenagers that I was around would typically go to their friends for dating advice. And, you know, and we laugh, but, but we do it with work advice and everything, and we go to our peers, and okay, so, but it was always funny because they, they would go to each other for dating advice. Now, the truth is, uh, no offense to teenagers whatsoever, because I used to be one, we all did, even though you know, I know some of you were grown, born up, or born grown up, you know, whatever, I know that. Okay, you didn't, you've never experienced life as a teenager, never made a mistake, but some of us did. And so I remember when I was a teenager, and so I could relate. And, and if, you know, as, as a teenager, if you go to another teenager for dating advice, it's similar to the blind leading the blind. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to work because, oh, y'all just look so cute together. Sure, you should be together. 
as if that's what you should base it on, you know, that, that you should establish a relationship. But the truth is, in our lives, we, we sometimes go to the wrong sources. As I mentioned, we may get our, our way of living through some movie that we watched. I watched The Godfather this week. I'd never seen The Godfather. I've heard it's an incredible movie, so I watched The Godfather this week. We recorded it, so I watched it. If I operated like Vito Corleone from The, from the Godfather, all right, I would probably not... He's probably not the best counsel to follow. So if I get the way that I'm going to live my life through somebody like him in the movies or music or just from outside sources, I'm in serious trouble. But the truth is that Jesus provides wonderful counsel. It's almost that word, the wording there, and some of your, some of your versions may have a comma in there, but, but most, of, most of what scholars will tell you is that was meant to be read all as kind of one description, one title for him. It's almost like wonder counselor. It's like he's a superhero counselor guy. And so that, that's how we should interpret that, that particular passage. And so Jesus, there's no teacher like him. He, he helps us understand the way life ought to be. He gives us clear direction. There's, there, there's, he cuts straight to the heart of the issue. And, and when you go to him for counseling, you get love, you get sympathy, you get everything you could ever want and need in a counselor. He is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. It goes on to say that he is the mighty God which implies that his strength is perfect and it's available. Some of us live our lives, unfortunately, apart from the strength of God. And the truth be told, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul describes the life we live as a spiritual battle. That, that we, what we see isn't really what we're fighting, but it's all the demonic forces, the forces of Satan behind it all, trying to destroy you. That may freak some of you out, but that's the truth that most of what we fight against, we can't even see. And so if we live our lives in the strength that we can only find within ourselves, we're going to lose that particular battle because that sort of strength has to be invisible because what we fight is invisible. And so He is the source of strength, and His strength is perfect and available for those spiritual battles, those attacks that we face. John chapter 16, verse 33, talks about the fact that Jesus says this. He says, I have told you these things, he's, he's talked to his disciples, so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous, because I have conquered the world. His strength is perfect. He's overcome the world and all that we're going to face. I don't know about you, but there are times when I run into something and, and I start to really get all upset about it, and I'm reminded over and over again, God takes me back to the Scripture and almost sort of smacks me in the head from time to time, saying, you know it. If I've overcome the entire world and everything I'll ever face, do you think that this is not something that's in that realm? And, you know, and, and I don't know if God's sarcastic or not, but he sure seems like that to me sometimes. And I appreciate that because I can be a little bit sarcastic myself. But, but I, I'm, I'm reminded over and over that no matter what I face, that Jesus has gone on ahead of me to conquer that particular issue. And he's given me a way to have strength over that. In 1 John chapter 4, 4, uh, it describes the fact that... that even though we face a great enemy in the world, a spiritual enemy, that we can take heart in the fact that, that who lives inside of us, Jesus Christ, is greater than he, Satan, who lives and influences the world. So his strength is perfect and available. Verse 6 also describes him as the eternal, or some of your versions may say the everlasting Father. No one cares and protects like him. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, describes the love of God as being infinite, everlasting, it never ends. In Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 38, Paul describes it this way. He says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor, nor rulers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the eternal Father. Nobody cares. Nobody loves like Him. There's probably somebody here today who feels a little bit beyond the love of God. Maybe you feel like, well, I've just you know, kind of done things wrong, or I've just gotten distant. You know, surely to goodness God doesn't really love me in that way. The Bible is clear. His love is everlasting, and nothing that has ever been created can separate you from the love of God. God was not a created being, and I don't understand all this stuff, but He was, he was always there before, and He will always be after. And because He's not a created being, His love will never stop, because nothing created can separate us from the love. And he, he is the only one who can separate us from His love, and yet He describes in Jeremiah 31.3 that His love never ends. So in His very nature, we cannot be separated from His love. Not only that, but the Bible describes Him as the everlasting Father. He holds eternity in His hands, which means He sees things we don't see. He sees what's going to happen later on. He sees what's going to happen tomorrow. He's seen the whole road that He's taken us on. I described my road just a minute earlier. It kind of seems curvy at some point. How in the world would I wind up here after having been there and there and there and there? Maybe you've asked the same questions. God, I don't understand the path that you've chosen for me. I can kind of see, okay, it's been good, but that just seems kind of odd. Why would you lead me there? But he sees all eternity. He holds it in his hands, and he knows exactly what he's doing. He describes him as a father. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. I know my children. I know their voice. They know my voice. That's the relationship that Jesus has with us. No one cares and protects like Him. In verse 6, the very end, Isaiah describes Him as the Prince of Peace. And ultimately, He makes peace between God and humanity. We talked about last week the fact that Jesus is the atonement for our sin. And, and what the great news is this, that God's wrath certainly uh, doesn't end towards sin. He's always angry towards sin. But Jesus because of the payment that He made in His death, satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. That God's wrath no longer is directed toward us, but it was focused there on Jesus in our place. And we gain forgiveness and escape from God's wrath, replacing our trust and commitment in Him. So He makes peace between God and humanity. His peace, in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says that His peace is different than the world gives. Why? Because the world can't deal with our sin. The world can't complete us and give us wholeness. That word peace there in the Old Testament, shalom, means completeness and wholeness. And it implies that there is a prosperous relationship between two people. There's peace between them. True peace can't come from the world, obviously, as I said, because the world can't deal with your sin, which is the root cause of the lack of peace in our lives. And he gives us peace. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Peace that surpasses any understanding we might have. If you've lived with Jesus for very long and walked with Him and submitted to Him and sought Him out and leaned into Him as much as you can, you've realized that something miraculous has happened in your life and your heart because He's replaced all that anxiety with something that's, that you can't even explain. How could you go through a situation that's awful, that you don't understand, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and yet still remain somewhat peaceful in the midst of it in your heart, complete and whole because you know Jesus Christ? That's something only God can do. But when you lean into Him, when you walk with Him, He does it every single time. Verse 7, The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and sustain it. With justice and righteousness from now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
Not only is he the source of all knowledge and wisdom, that his strength is perfect and available, that he cares and protects like no one else, that he makes peace between God and humanity, but his glory will never end. And that's significant because our purpose, the very purpose we were created, the Bible says is to glorify God, to bring him praise, to make him look good. The means for doing that is to simply enjoy him forever, to be satisfied in him. And because his glory will never end, we can always fulfill our purpose, and that is to glorify Him and have satisfaction in life. So the Bible reveals to us who Jesus really is several hundred years before He came. I hope you, I hope you see it. I hope you understand that this isn't just some history lesson that, well, that was great that Isaiah said all that, that Jesus became the fulfillment of that, and one day He will reign forever and be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, that His kingdom will never end. The Old Testament says that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, that His glory will never end, and that by enjoying and being satisfied in who Jesus is and what He does, that you fulfill your ultimate purpose in life and all the secondary purposes along the way. He came for your benefit, for mine. And His love for us never ends. He wants us to be complete in Him today, the only question then remains is, will we turn to Him and let Him do it? It seems as if every week, <clears throat> I was telling somebody this earlier, that I seem to live out what I'm about to preach on every week. And I guess that's more of God's accountability factor, I suppose, or sense of humor or whatever it is. But this week preceding today was one that I needed counsel, was one that I needed strength, was one that... I needed to see God's plan beyond what was right in front of my face. It was one that I needed peace. It was one that I, that I needed to, to see how I could glorify God in a certain situation. And it wasn't anything that was big or really traumatic or anything that was life-altering that happened in my life. Most weeks, let's be honest, most weeks are not like that. They're not life-altering. They're just everyday, normal sort of activities. And yet if we learn in those to trust God and be satisfied in His wonderful counsel by, by digging into God's Word and letting it sink into our lives, if we learn in those times to lean on His strength and let Him fight the battles for us, understand that what we see is not always what is, if we learn in those times to trust Him that nobody cares for us like Him, that He sees the whole plan, if we learn in those times those everyday sort of experiences to welcome His peace, to seek His peace rather than just a resolution to our particular problem. If we seek in those times to always fulfill our ultimate purpose of glorifying God, then when we do face the bigger life-altering moments, that we'll be ready. And we'll experience those differently. We'll experience those with a greater hope, a greater certainty. And so this week, I guarantee you this, that if you've paid attention whatsoever to the Word of God today, if you let it resonate in your heart and your mind, if you take it from here and you say, you know what, when I need some counsel, I'm not going to go just to my friends anymore. I'm going to see what God's Word has to say. Because He's the source of all wisdom and knowledge. When, when I'm struggling with, with not being able to get victory over a particular situation, I just can't seem to, to do it. I'm going to lean on God's strength because it's perfect and available. When, 
when, when, when I don't see God's plan, I'm going to trust Him that He knows all eternity and He knows what He's doing and He cares. And when I'm experiencing life without peace, I'm going to trust Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. And I'm ultimately going to fulfill my purpose of glorifying God. If, you, if you'll do that this week, you'll be tested in these areas. Guaranteed. Because Satan wants nothing more than to destroy you from understanding and living out who Jesus really is. Because if you do, and if we do as a church, then we will see God work in ways that we cannot even imagine in our lives and in this church. If we will take the Scripture and live it out, we'll see Him work in ways. We'll see Him give us counsel we could not have come up with on our own. We'll see Him bring us peace that we can't explain. And we'll see God glorified in ways that draw more people to Him that we can take no credit for. And if we do that, we will face testing over and over and over. The choice then becomes what we do about it. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Things aren't always going to go the way you'd like. And you're going to question whether God's counsel is right. Whether He knows what He's doing. Whether His love truly does last forever. So in those moments, what will you do? What will you do this week? What will you do this afternoon on the way to lunch? What will you do at lunch? When peace doesn't exactly happen. What will you do this Christmas? When maybe your friends and family, maybe you don't get along totally. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe this season is just particularly difficult for you. What will you do? Scripture talks about that Jesus embodies all of these things. My encouragement to you, whether it's for the first time or just again and again and again, to lean into Him. To get into His Word, let it sink in deep into your heart and live out who He is and who He says you can be through Him. You'll be tested this week on whose counsel you'll seek. Whether you'll trust that He knows what He's doing. Whether you're going to seek peace in Him or try to manipulate it on your own whether you're going to fulfill your ultimate purpose of being satisfied in God so that you can glorify Him. Especially this time of year when we spend lots and lots of money trying to be satisfied and make other people satisfied. So my encouragement to you, my prayer for us, is that we'll begin to experience Jesus the way that He wants us to. And that we'll endure the testing. That we'll continue to lean into Him. That our enemy will be defeated because of the fact that Jesus has already overcome the world. And we'll see Him work in ways that we cannot possibly explain or possibly imagine. So maybe you say, you know, I, I'm a person who I don't really know if I have ever really gotten hold of that totally. Maybe, maybe you come today and you're not sure if you even are walking with God through your life. You've given your life to Him. What do you do? The Bible's very clear. It's, it's very simple. It just simply states that we need to repent, turn away from that old life and believe in Jesus. Live our lives for Him. There's no magical formula. It's simply turning away from the old life and living the new one. And what do I do if I just need advice throughout the week? Ask Jesus. What if I need to see God's plan? Talk to Him. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in His Word. I guarantee He'll come through for you. The road may be a little bit curvy. You may not totally understand, but He'll come through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that the story that you wrote all fits together. And that we see several hundred years before Jesus was born that it was 
predicted that he would be born in fact and who he would be and then then it happened and he lived it out and Jesus thank you for being who you are and for those of us Lord who need counsel today may we seek you only may you provide it for us thank you that there's no teacher like you that when we walk with you you make life understandable that we see it for what it really is and how we should live it thank you there's no counselor like you you give us love and sympathy and all we could ever need direction and guidance God, we thank you that your strength is perfect, that it's available, that you fight our battles for us, that you've gone on before us to conquer everything that we'll face this week, whether it be finals or somebody at work or difficult situations, whatever it is, you've already been there. God, we thank you that, that you hold eternity in your hands. You know what you're doing, and you have an incredible, loving plan for each of us. And Jesus, thank you that you've brought peace between us and God. Thank you for paying the penalty that we owe and for not holding it against us anymore. God, may we this week glorify you by being completely satisfied in who you are and in what you do. As we go from here, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and courage to follow you. Pray for those who are hurting this time of year that you bring comfort. We thank you for all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.